Thank you for joining me today as we continue with our study through the Gospel of John. I hope that you've all had a a good week and are, are staying safe, healthy, and joyful. Before we go on, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy and your boundless grace. Be with us now as we explore your Holy Scripture. Open our minds and our hearts to the truth that you would have for us. Let your spirit guide us as we seek to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. While I was uh, preparing for this message last week, I had occasion to pause and, and consider the phenomenon of the star attraction. The star attraction. How even when surrounded by all sorts of amazing entities, there can be one item that is that is elevated above all the rest. For, for example, in the Louvre Museum in, in Paris, which contains over 7,500 separate items in, in their, their painting department, the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci consistently attracts such a large crowd that the that the museum curators have been forced to place a time limit on how long someone is allowed to stand in front of the painting. At the Fort Worth Zoo in in Texas, there's always a crowd in front of the meerkat exhibit. And one can hardly say that they've they've been to Yosemite unless they have at least one photo of El Capitan. Well, besides their undeniable popularity, the examples that I mentioned also share another characteristic. Their attractive nature is entirely subjective. Not everybody thinks that the Mona Lisa is the best painting ever created. And a lot of people feel that that Half Dome is superior to El Capitan. And, now I know this is hard to believe, But not everybody thinks that the meerkats are the coolest thing at the zoo. Well, the flip side of subjective popularity is that there are some things that are undeniably awesome. Things that that rise above their surroundings with such an unquestionable quality that there is absolutely no room for contrary opinion. Such is the nature of the verse that we'll be studying today. Yep. You heard me right. One verse. A verse that that John MacArthur called the most concise biblical statement of the Incarnation and therefore one of Scripture's most significant verses. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Those four words express an incredible reality. God entering into humanity, the infinite becoming finite, eternity entering into time, and the invisible becoming visible. Earlier in this series, we talked about the significance of John's use of the phrase, the word. If you remember, we noted that both the Hebrews and the Greeks used that phrase to describe the impersonal and and powerful force that was at work in the universe. And we also noted that, that John identified the word as being with God in all eternity, before creation, and that the word was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And now, John tells us, the eternal word had had left heaven and was born into the world in the body of a man. This was way, way too much for a lot of folks to handle. The the affirmation of, of Christ's full humanity was entirely rejected by some people who refused to believe that a holy God would ever stoop so low as to inhabit a sinful fleshly body. The strong refusal to believe in the incarnation, which is the technical term for becoming flesh, the strong refusal to believe in in the incarnation, it it drove some people to, to start their own heretical cult. They were referred to as the the docetics, uh, which is taken from the Greek word that means to seem or to appear. And and this group was strongly rooted in the the dualistic philosophy of of the time that regarded spirit as good and matter as bad. Therefore, they argued, It was impossible for Christ to to have inhabited an evil material body. And and they taught that that either Christ's human body was an apparition that only seemed human, or that that Christ's divine spirit entered into a mere man, Jesus, at the time of his baptism and, and departed sometime to return to heaven, sometime before the crucifixion. So John, as you can as you can imagine, was justifiably horrified by these heresies, and he spoke out strongly against them. Here's something that he wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Jesus' humanity was not in appearance only. He took on all of the essential elements of humanity and was made, as Paul says in Philippians 2.7, in the likeness of men. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The literal meaning of, of the word translated as dwelt is to live in a tent. And it carries a, a particular significance. You see, 
in the Old Testament, God tented with his people as they, they wandered through the desert. His glorious presence in the tabernacle, which was essentially a, a big old tent, his strong presence strengthened and sustained the Israelites while they searched for the promised land. The notion of God sharing a tent with his people is a historic reality, and it's also a future promise. After Christ returns, there, there will be a new heaven and a, and a new earth, and God will once again dwell with his people. Listen to, uh, to what John wrote in Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Well, the word that's, that's used for dwelling place in that verse, it's the exact same word from our passage. Glorified and, and redeemed through the blood of Jesus, God's people will share a tent with him for all of eternity. And the word became flesh and, and dwelt among us, and, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Even though Jesus manifested God's glory in a way that had, had never been seen before, it, it was still veiled but by human flesh. It was only at the, the transfiguration, and, and to only three of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus revealed a physical manifestation of his heavenly glory. L listen to the account of the, the transfiguration from Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. As awesome as that must have been, it was only a preview of the glory that, that will be revealed when Jesus returns. What Peter, James, and John witnessed was not the uh, full-strength glory that is described in the Old Testament. In Exodus 33, when Moses asked God to, to please show him his glory, do we all remember what, what God told him? God told Moses that anyone who saw his face would die. So he shielded Moses in the, in the cleft of a rock and he, he covered him with his hand before he passed by. That, that is the terrible and awesome glory that Christ will manifest at the second coming. But it's not the glory that John is referring to in this verse. The glory that, that Jesus primarily displayed while he was here on earth was the glory of God's divine attributes. Things like truth, wisdom, love, grace, knowledge, power, and holiness. The reason that Jesus was able to do this is because, as Jesus himself attests to in John 10, he and the Father are one. As the one and only Son of the Father, Jesus and God possess the same attributes. Jesus is the the Son of God, uh, not in the sense of being born or created, but in the sense of 
of being a son who was like his father in, in all attributes and in the sense of having a father-son relationship with God the Father. The distinction as the one and only Son of God distinguishes Jesus from believers uh, who are called sons of God, but in a different sense. John goes on to tell us that the glory that Jesus displayed as the only Son of the Father was, and I quote, full of grace and truth. Well, that shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us. Because those two attributes, those two attributes are the the ones most closely connected to our salvation. If we believe in the truth of the gospel, we are saved by his grace. Believing in the truth of the gospel, that is step one towards a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 1, verse 13, where he said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. John's emphasis on the truth is evident from the the very first words of his gospel. He presents the facts of, of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But in spite of the facts, there were still those who who sought to present their own version of the truth. We talked earlier about the docetic heresy, but they were only one of many. And just like today, there are a multitude of alternate facts and subjective realities that compete for people's attention. John knew the truth, the real truth, and he knew that the real truth had the power to set us free. Anything less would, would doom us to destruction. Listen to our, our Lord's words from John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. This grim reality is confirmed by the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Believing in the truth of the gospel is the only path to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the full embodiment of God's grace, a grace that is sufficient enough to save the whole world. But that grace cannot and will not be available to everybody. A vague belief in in God without a belief in the truth of the gospel is absolutely useless. Seeking salvation through a Christ who is anything less than the Christ presented in Scripture 
that's a lost cause. In chapter 5 of this book, uh, Jesus will tell us that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Word became flesh. The, the implications of the incarnation are, are numerous and far-reaching. That God would become a man and, and live among his people is amazing in and of itself. But the fact that it, that it was part of his plan from the very beginning, that should leave us speechless. Why did God's plan for salvation need the incarnation? What did we learn about God in the process? Well, let's try and answer these questions and more by looking at a few of the reasons for the Word becoming flesh. First reason, the incarnation revealed the character and nature of God to mankind. See, in the past, God had revealed himself through his works as recorded in Scripture his world, and and his words. Uh, The incarnation, though, uh, allowed us to see God in a most remarkable way. The almighty and, and sovereign God of the Old Testament is the personal heavenly father of those who have put their faith in, in Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, God is referred to as father over 240 times compared to a a small handful of times in the Old Testament. Seeing God as our Father is an invitation to intimacy, an an invitation to a a deeper relationship with a God who wants to know us and, and was willing to go to extraordinary lengths to make that happen. Through the incarnation, we're we're able to see the identity of God lived out through the attributes and actions of Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus ever did was exactly what God would have done. From feeding a hungry crowd or or making a blind man see, to letting the little children gather around him for prayer. Jesus showed the world what the Father was like. When Jesus spoke, His words were the very words of God, whether he spoke in power to change the world or in love to change the heart. The words of Christ were effective and true and characterized by the unassailable nature of God. In Hebrews 1.3, we read that Jesus was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And in Colossians 1, we can read, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. My second point is the incarnation allowed God to relate to us in an unprecedented manner. Now, I am sure that all of us at at one time or another have heard the expression, don't judge someone until you have walked a mile in their shoes. In other words, there, there's no value in making assessments from an outsider's perspective. To truly understand what a person's life is like, you need to be right there with them. The incarnation is the ultimate fulfillment of that sentiment. 
The incarnation means that, that God was willing to get involved. Like a store manager who, who leaves his office, puts on his apron, and, and joins the team on the sales floor. Jesus set heaven aside to experience life from our perspective. As the writer of the, of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, to, to feel the lure of sin and to stand alone in righteousness, refusing to give in and, and join the crowd. He felt the, the sting of betrayal and the sting of the whip, yet he did not retaliate in kind. He, he felt the joy of love and, and the sorrow of, of losing that love. You are never alone, he says, to the forgotten, to the abandoned, to the broken, to the shamed, to the divorced. You are never alone. You are not alone, and I know what you're going through. Those are incredibly reassuring words to hear when, when we're struggling, but, but even more so when they come from the Lord himself. The incarnation made it, it possible for Jesus to empathize with us in our humanity and to comfort us right where we are. I want to share something now from, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who wrote, Only the humble believe him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair, that he takes what is little and lowly and makes it marvelous. And that is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and, and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. The incarnation demonstrated that God wants to know us. To know us, as they say, uh, with our warts and all. What a tremendous relief that is. To know that God is, is willing to meet us wherever we are and to accept us just as we are. Amen. And moving on now to, to my third point. The incarnation affirms the goodness of physical existence. Earlier in the message, uh, we talked about the, the docetic heresy and, and how their beliefs were centered on the notion that flesh was inherently evil. Well, even though that, that idea has been thoroughly disabused by the doctrine of the Trinity, the seeds that were planted by that philosophy, well, they've continued to plague the church. Over the years, there have been individuals and, and entire groups that have, have sought to seek higher spiritual existent, existence by neglecting and depriving their physical existence. 
The, the fact that God was willing to unite with the physical body in the person of Jesus is an affirmation. It's an affirmation that God approves of physical matter and earthly existence. Do any of us believe for even one minute that the Holy Spirit would dwell in an unworthy vessel? Of course not. And yet, there are still people who devalue their bodies and and avoid the delights of an earthly existence in a misguided pursuit of holiness. God delights in his creation because it displays his glory. And that is the exact reason why we should share in that delight. Isaiah 6 tells us that the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth. Our physical senses are are a gift from our Creator, a gift that allows us to experience the wonders of creation through touch, taste, sight, smell, and, and hearing. When we experience pleasure in the world, our hearts should turn to God in gratitude for making it possible. He has promised us eternity in heaven, but out of His boundless grace, He provides us with little glimpses of his glorious beauty to keep us encouraged and joyful on our journey. And my last point is that the incarnation redeems fallen man. And this is the big one. Let me start by by reading something by Carol Hauslander from her book, Wood of the Cradle, Wood of the Cross. For your sake, our majestic God became a helpless infant at the mercy of his creatures. At the beginning of his life on earth, the God who had raised the canopy of the heavens let himself be raised off the cold ground by the humble wood of his cradle. With stunning and splendid humility, he was bound by gravity to that cradle just as firmly as he later would be bound by nails to the wood of the cross, which again raised him above the stony ground, once more at the mercy of those he created. The overarching theme of the Bible is God's redemptive plan. From the moment that we were banished from the garden and relegated to a life of toil and pain, our Heavenly Father has been working on a way to bring us back into the family. And although that might seem simple on paper, the plan for our redemption faced a seemingly insurmountable problem. How? How could a a sinful man be reconciled to a holy God? A God whose very nature prevented him from even being in the presence of sin. If mankind had any hope of ever standing before God, the sin problem had to be dealt with. We needed to be cleansed and and we needed to be forgiven. A sacrifice had to be made. But not just any sacrifice. As we can read in the book of Hebrews, the requirements for that sacrifice were very specific. This is from Hebrews 9. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, 
there is no forgiveness of sins. The Jewish people had been sacrificing animals for years to the point where, quite frankly, God no longer desired it. Listen to what he told the people. This is from Psalm 50. No, I don't need your sacrifices of flesh and blood. What I want from you is your true thanks. I want your promises fulfilled. I want you to trust me in your times of trouble so I can rescue you and you can give me glory. Even if God had had not grown weary of the repetition and the empty gestures of, of the blood sacrifices, the reality was that there weren't enough animals in the world to accomplish what he had in mind. You see, God was planning a one-time, once-and-for-all event, one perfect sacrifice whose, whose blood would cover the sins of mankind for all time. God decided that he would provide the sacrifice. He would provide the sacrifice in the person of his only son. But that created another problem. How could a son who existed as spirit shed blood? Well, the incarnation was the answer. The word would become flesh. As the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 2, Therefore he, referring to Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus, the one and only Son of God, was, was born into humanity as a, as a helpless infant. He, he lived a, his life among us obediently, and he went to his death on, on Calvary's cross. Although we were the ones who deserved it, Jesus took our place on the cross, and he shed his blood on our behalf. Our guilt and, and sin were taken away from us and placed on Jesus, who discharged it at his death. The wrath of God, a wrath that we so justly deserved, was removed from us, and we were allowed reconciliation with God. The chains that, that had held us in bondage to the law, to the guilt of sin, and to the power of sin, they had been broken. And we were free to live holy lives. In the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, I think that the Apostle's words, they provide us with a concise template for our response to the miracle of the Incarnation. And we should be deeply humbled. Our efforts to to serve God must be measured against His efforts to save us. Can there ever be a time when any of us can, with a clear conscience, say that God is asking too much of us? That He's requiring too big a sacrifice of our talents, our gifts, our money, or our time? 
We were bought with a price. A, a price that we could have never paid. And as a result, we, we've been left with a debt that we, that we can never repay. But that doesn't mean that we ignore it. On the contrary, we, we acknowledge it and we honor it. We, we honor the debt with our love for God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. We honor the debt with love for His church and for His people. We honor the debt by glorifying God in everything that we do. We take care of ourselves and we see to the needs of others. We honor the debt by making the conscious decision to appreciate the beauty that is all around us and give glory to God for each and every moment that we're here to enjoy it. The Word became flesh. Four little words that changed the world and, and ushered in a whole new chapter in mankind's relationship to the divine. As I mentioned earlier, the implications of the incarnation are, are far-reaching. Volumes have been written and are still being written on the subject. And people are still struggling with the math behind 100% God and 100% man. And, and there are still those who would claim that the whole idea is way too much for them to handle. So they refuse to accept the truth and, and they come up with scenarios that are more amenable to their particular worldview. But truth is truth, whether we understand the math or not. Believing in Jesus means believing in exactly who he said he was, not who we think he was. Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us more like you. Thank you for bringing your spirit to life within us and for showing us a better way to live. Let your love shine through us as we share your truth with the world. Keep us safe from the temptations and the evils of this world. We give all glory and honor to you, now and forever. Amen. Well, thank you all for joining me today. As always, may the Lord continue to bless you and to keep you and to be gracious unto each and every one of you. I pray that he turns his face and, and just lets it shine upon you and, and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a good week. Uh, appreciate the beauty of this world. Let the, the love of the Lord just fill your heart. I hope that you all stay safe, healthy, and joyful. Have a good week. I love you all. Bye. Jesus was with God, was God, and, cre and all of creation came from him. But despite his majesty, this world would not receive him as such. In fact, he was to be treated quite cruelly. Some 700 years before these events would happen, 
it was said in Isaiah, beginning in, or in chapter 55, beginning in verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way and the lord has laid on him all of his iniquities on the night before these events would finally come to pass, Jesus was with his disciples and he started something we know as the Lord's Supper, a time that we can share in, in fellowship with each other and him to remember those events and the things that he did for us. We, we take bread, which represents his body that was broken on that cross for us. Let's take that bread together. And we share in the cup, wine in his day, juice at our church, that represents his blood that was shed, the blood that pays for all of our sins. Let's take that together. Father, we are grateful that the Lord Jesus did all that he did for us. He was with you in the beginning, and he has no end. It says that his kingdom will never end. In all of his majesty, he laid all that down to come and save us, Lord. We are so grateful for what he's done, and we owe our very lives to him. Thank you, Father, for this time with you. Thank you for Jesus and the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. It's all.